0: seems to really
1: speak like, oh, like with arrows and and I liked
0: her but I bet you didn't do your homework in her class
1: <laughs> <laughs> the day
2: of the Lord
1: was every test
0: yeah no kidding
2: well, well what do you say do you have we read a bunch of different books really uh, short ones mind you but um were there items that stood out to you, again, like, I don't know about this, or, okay, or um, things that you're kind of chewing over from our reading this week? I have a question which
0: is not pertinent to very much of anything around here. It said, it said, Nineveh was the capital of Syria.
2: Nineveh? Nineveh. Yeah, so Nineveh is the capital of the, of the Assyrian Empire. Syria and Assyria are different, oh. they're, they're not cognates at all. Okay. Syria is this region kind of like Syria is today. Yeah, um, Assyria would include modern day most of Iraq okay. uh, and would impinge mm. there upon Syria because it grows. But Assyria is the bigger one. Syria's capital is Damascus. Assyria's capital appears to be Nineveh. In some references, it's the city of Ashur. A-S-S-H-U-R. But Nineveh... Ashur is the older city, and Nineveh is like the new sort of capital. Is it still it. there? Nineveh? No, it's sort of wiped out. I mean, there's... There's, there's broken pottery and things like that, but... Nothing like, um, I'm the same with Jericho, ancient city totally wiped out. Uh, Babylon uh, is a replacement. You can actually see more of ancient Babylon in, in Berlin than you can <laughs> if you go to Iraq. Yeah. Yeah, the Germans stole the things that were yeah, worth curating. Yeah. Well, at the risk of of being no, obnoxious, yes, sir. Okay. You well, had a question you wanted to ask for a couple of weeks.
3: Well, we'll get to that another time, um, <laughs> because it's let's. I wanted to concentrate on. Well, anyway, gosh, you go I don't remember. Yeah, (laughs) that was the question.
2: (laughs) The question was if there was something that stood out to you as we got ready. That we, you know, it's not just about questions, but it's about comments or things that you, you know, that are leading or the guiding your thinking this week.
3: How much of of what we have read here is, I'll say, historically accurate? Yeah. Um, Well, I'm thinking about with respect to the kings, not so much the prophets, but the kings.
2: Yeah, I mean. It's hard to know all of that, but, but no reason um, to discount what we have. I mean, I think the thing that we have to remember that, that we often, I think, have a skewed perspective is that th- this is like a country the size of Rhode Island. And sometimes we, we think, ah, oh, this is like the most splendiferous place in the world, and factually that would be very incorrect. So, um, You've heard that Solomon was the richest man in the world, perhaps. That is so false. And the proof is Solomon marries one of Pharaoh's daughters, and she finds his palace a pigsty. So he has to build her a special room, because it's not nice enough. Her room is nicer than his. And the temple that Solomon builds to the Lord in Jerusalem, God's house, is smaller than our sanctuary. This is really important to have in mind.
3: For instance, Josiah, yeah. is there historical record that he was killed in the battle, or, or more well, I think it's a, in the then-
2: Historical record is a really interesting phrase, because ancient people didn't have history as we do it now. Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of modern history really starts in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's no reason, I think, to be suspicious that Josiah is killed on Nico's way to the battle of Carchemish. So this is the thing, is you've got Egypt, which ultimately swallows Ethiopia, and Egypt is a relatively wealthy country, and part of it is it's compartmentalized from the other people of Mesopotamia. So Egypt had Ethiopia as an... Ethiopia was a strong kingdom, actually. It... Egypt subdues Ethiopia, and then there's no more natural predators, if if that makes sense. Because you've got to go across uh, Canaan. And and Canaan is diversely populated and peopled, so it's really the Assyrian Empire and the Neo-Babylonian Empire that start to push down on that buffer. Um, Egypt really had never been tested on a scale outside of North Africa, and the test comes in 609, apparently, at the Battle of Carchemish, uh, that's where Pharaoh Necho goes up and attacks the Neo-Babylonians under the general Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king, uh, and soundly loses. So yeah. Egypt is like a defeated world power that used to be important, but will really not will really be a second-tier country here on out, if that makes sense. Um, and so this is part of what you hear in the prophets. It's like, what, first of all, why do you keep going back to Egypt? Because you were in slavery there, and it's like you're seeking to be in bondage to them again. So God delivered you once and for all. do not go back under bondage. If it's second, it's not even pragmatic to return to Egypt because they're a second-tier country. It would be like something like, hey, um, the Nazis seem real powerful let's throw our allegiance in with France. Well, that didn't go very well, right? Because it took about six weeks to run that country over. I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. sort of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. <coughs> but Nico is a real person. The Battle of Carchemish is a real battle. Um, but you've got to think, Josiah didn't even make it to the Battle of Carchemish. I, I mean, it's like a little... He's kind of like a gnat on Egypt's army, and they just swat him, and that's the end of that.
3: <laughs> the, 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 the Nico even said, don't bother with me. Nico
2: know? says that in Chronicles. See, so this is important. Mm-hmm. We, we, we have two accounts. We have kings, that's which, nice. to be honest with you, is a little more like history as we're, f- we're familiar. It's more the events. Chronicles is a little more editorializing, that sort of says, ah, this happened because the people did this bad thing. And so, in Chronicles, you get, honestly, a little more, don't take this the wrong way, but you get a little more embellished story. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean fictionalized. You just get an embellished story. And so, in the Kings, Nico doesn't say anything to Josiah. In Chronicles, Josiah's a really good guy. So, how is it, that God didn't deliver him. Well, I mean Nico himself said, Go away, and Josiah was stubborn and didn't listen. So there you have it. Because <laughs> I think when you read it, you gotta wonder if Josiah's the best king really ever. Really, then how come he just all of a sudden is slaughtered in a the battle? There's gotta be some reason. This becomes really important. There's got to be some reason, because life and faith are linear after all. Uh, I disagree with that phrase, even though at my core I believe that to be true, along with the rest of us, and I think this is part of the deal, right? Chronicles is trying to make sense of, why do bad things happen to good people? And if well, he almost
3: like if you believe Chronicles. Look, almost as if uh, uh, Josiah was, was asking for it. Because babe, if it is true that he have said, Don't attack me, I'm I'm, gonna, I'm I'm way more powerful. And Josiah said, I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna do it anyway. But I mean as you said, up to that point Josiah was he's, he he was following the covenant. <laughs>
2: So this always becomes a really interesting thing. And she said in the video, the problem is pride. And I disagree with her. I think we have really taken pride. Uh, we've mapped pride into a negative category theologically. And I think really the word we ought to use is hubris. Mm-hmm. Hubris and pride are really different things linguistically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you don't mind me saying the definition of humility, that's sort of my ground, uh, my baseline is, humility is being exactly who God created you to be. No more, and no less. So humility really is about proper pride. Being more than you are is about hubris. (laughs) So it would be hubris, I would suggest, for um, the island nation of Haiti to think that God has put on their side such that they can militarily conquer the United States. (laughs) And that's a clear, and we laugh at that because we're Americans and we believe in the American military machine and we all know that Haiti is a fundamentally impoverished nation that has no weapons. So this actually makes quite a bit of sense. That analogy is pretty similar to Josiah trying to overrun Egypt. Israel was sort of like Haiti or Portugal. (laughs) We just have to put this in perspective, right? And so you can say, well, like the Lord's on your side, you can do anything... Maybe, but that phrase could also lead you into a hubris mentality, and, and I think this is something to lift up. So I used to teach at a school, and I used to learn this bit, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which is quite ar- arguably the most um, abused verse in the New Testament, because that verse in context is that Paul is suffering on behalf of a message. He's getting beaten and starved. He's been stoned a few times. And uh, what we learned as teenagers is if God's on your side, you can do anything, like get gold medals in the Olympics when you've never trained. And all of that, I think, is theoretically possible, but hogwash. I mean, you know, I guess God could make me a professional basketball player, but I don't really believe God works that way. So I don't think so. You know what I mean? It sort of lends us to magical thinking and to hubris, and in general, um, people who buy into that thinking, I think, fall into the hubris trap. So that's what happened
0: to Josiah?
2: It's what happened to Josiah, and Nahum says that's what's going to happen to Assyria, too. Assyria is so into themselves, and the truth is when you're the best, uh, it doesn't mean you can sit around because yeah. there's always somebody else who is contending for your position.
0: I'm really surprised that Tampa Bay has been able to... win the Astros. You're kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding? I wouldn't make that up. So
2: I think that hubris really makes quite a bit of sense when we think about sports teams. And I think if we wanted to take the message seriously the hubris message really has to do with things like when does nationalism become like jingoism and patriotism and inherent hubris. So when do we mistake our civic duty for world dominance? If, if that makes sense, I think that's the analog. I, I think we could say, oh look, this is about countries that are evil like Assyria and Nazi Germany. Good thing we're not like that. And then I think we missed the hook here. The hook is to beware of hubris. So if I were going to preach this, which I'm not, because it's not an electionary, we have to beware of things like saying an American life is worth more than every life in Southeast Asia. Which Barry Goldwater said during the Vietnam no War, or we have to think that American—be careful when we say American interests outweigh um, South American democratically elected leaders, so that we can assassinate them through the CIA and protect AT&T or protect American oil interests by overthrowing most and installing the Shah. Th- this is American hubris. Now, I didn't mean hey, we're worse than anybody else. I mean, this is, I think, is what the prophet has in mind. The Assyrians believe that their gods are gifting them with victory, and if we worship America as a god, it's hubris, and that's the analog, I I, I think. I hope I didn't sound too controversial there.
0: No, so it says here... One fifty-eight. The goddess Ishtar protected, you know. So they, I everything mean, just states that. Mm-hmm. So, so these gods that they were always turning to, they apparently had some respect like, for these powers of uh, these.
1: Yeah, the that was problem. they started going back to. Yeah, that's, it's so
0: inexplicable to us nowadays when you have somebody, things are going good, you know, I love the Lord, but hey, I'm going to go down the street and burn incense, which he seems to dislike a whole lot, you know, or uh, sacrifice to this pile of rocks, although i, 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 I got to hedge my bets.
2: I think we've got it I think... Uh... I think that's fair, and I think there's also this tendency of us to look at these silly people that are worshipping rocks, and once again, I think idolatry is really about a system more than it is worshipping an image. So it has to do, I think, with hubris and transactionalism, and these are things that we find ourselves caught up in, I think, regularly. I don't know anybody that carves poles and offers food to the poles and thinks that's somehow appeasing God. I really don't know anybody who does that. Um, And if that's my definition of idolatry, whew, I'm free and clear. But but again, I think idolatry has a lot to do with these sort of messy ways in which I put value, either through my money or my time or my mental energy, in things that come at other people's expense or aren't life-giving. And that's really hard to preach about because, geez, how do you really quantify that? We always want quantities. We want clear definitions, and I'm not sure life is always so clear. (laughs) For example, taking on a running regimen could be really healthy. It could also be terrible for your body. So if you're doing this great exercise, but you're hurting your body, I would tell you it's idolatry. And that's not always clear, because for some people it, it isn't, and for some people it is. And that's, that's just really hard.
3: Well, what essentially I think you're saying is, in a sense, addiction is idolatry.
2: Yeah, and you know, again, I think the, our, our, our problem is that we like to pinpoint addiction to things like drugs and alcohol abuse. And um, what we often miss in mean, the idolatry category is that being workaholics and perfectionists mm-hmm. actually is, comes from the same brain dysfunction as those other things. They're just socially acceptable, right? Or an alcoholic who's able to be high-functioning, ah, not so bad as somebody who can't function under the influence of alcohol. So we make these gradations. Instead of saying that the root illness which is actually identifiable in a brain scan, the root illness is the same. The symptoms are different. We're much more comfortable with an exercise bulimic, that's somebody who either makes themselves vomit or they eat and they make themselves exercise those calories off. We're way more comfortable than that than we are with somebody who is addicted to marijuana. Tobacco. Or tobacco, or vaping, purple. or whatever yeah. else it is. Right? Yeah. I mean, and 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 this is—I think these are ways we get ourselves off the hook sometimes, <laughs> because we pigeonhole idolatry. It
0: says in the end that God has done our God, the Lord. Worship. is gonna overcome all this stuff. It's no matter what you do, He's going to. Be the outcome and and the world is going to be a beautiful place. And not for
1: everybody.
0: Well he's gonna judge and say uh uh-uh. Oh well, well not for everybody but then those people made their choices I suppose. But I'm saying at some point in time he's, he's providing for a beautiful world with all nice people in it.
2: This becomes a really interesting thought and it's in each one of our books and it's called The Day of the Lord. Right? Right. See, And and Amos talked about the day of the Lord. Now, I might have told you this, but here's a fun anecdote about it. I had a professor when I was in seminary. He's actually now the dean of the seminary at uh, Baylor. Uh, He wasn't back then. He'd gone to Scotland to Aberdeen to write his PhD, and he spoke in iambic pentameter. He he was a native Texan, but he spoke in meter. And he uh, he was this tall... I mean, he looked like a Scottish man, actually. He's tall, thin, and pale. And uh, he was a little bit awkward, but always with so much poise. And he was talking about the Day of the Lord, and I remember this to this day because it, did, it, it didn't come out in meter. The Day of the Lord is when God opens up a can of whoop-ass on the world. That was his <laughs> definition. Now, I... Uh, And this is what the prophets sort of say. And the images are, right? That's when God will sweep away all corruption. This is when God is going to sort of take apparently uneven scales and get even. The wicked will perish and the righteous will flourish. And it's interesting because I would tell you the day of the Lord... The prophets say you shouldn't want that, by the way. Have you noticed? They say don't want that. Mm -hmm. Because it's not going to work out well for you. (laughs) Let me rest there for a second and go on to the next thing, which is that the best-selling fiction series ever is not Harry Potter. It's Left Behind. Mm -hmm. Because it speaks to this cultural mythology that people who believe the right things are on God's team, or rather God's on our team, and faith has a real reward, and we won't suffer, and all those people who don't think like we do, who are evil and wrong, they'll all go to hell in a handbasket, and it'll suck to be them. So, even though you're miserable with your faith right now, hang on. Really all it is, is a way of karma thinking. You get what you deserve. And by the way, you don't even have to be a good person. You just have to believe in Jesus. And, and I want to suggest to you, actually, that what the prophets are asking us to do is to not look forward to that day. Not, because, not just because it won't go well for us, but I want to I ask you to consider, because God's not actually like that. We're like that. (laughs) The way we work is, you hit me, I hit you back. The way we are is, we get even. So what we often imagine is, when people do bad stuff to us, we didn't deserve it, (laughs) because it's from our own perspective. So God is our big brother or sister in the sky with a big paddle to whoop your butt. And if it doesn't happen now, it'll happen when you die because God will send you to hell. And I want to suggest to you the prophets are saying that way of thinking is so foreign to who God is. And the way they say it is if you really want to buy into that, it won't go well for you. Yeah, because, not to interrupt you, he seems to be
0: awfully patient with these evildoers.
2: And I I want to suggest to you the reason that is is because God isn't like us. God's greater than we are. Now, I think the church that raised me said, God isn't like us. God's better at being petty and getting even than we are. (laughs) Which I'm going to tell you, and this I think is at stake here, if you believe in eternal hell, that's exactly the God you believe in. Because I've got to tell you, eternal hell for something you do on earth. What we do on earth is not eternal. I don't know if you've thought about this. You could be a really bad person, but the badness ends with you or in the next generation. I mean, the things we do, they don't last forever. So why would God punish us forever for something that doesn't last forever? That'd be disproportionate punishment. So I think one of the biggest challenges to grace is the doctrine that hell is real and people go there forever. Hell can be real. People can go there. But if people go there forever, God isn't fair. I'm sorry, a child understands that. Where does it say
0: that? It
2: doesn't say it anywhere.
0: Hell isn't mentioned in the Bible anyway. So, where do we go from? Where did it come?
2: It came from our fantasy to make the world logical oh. and to make God like we are. That's oh, yeah. what I think.
0: Yeah.
2: Hell, the hell and you know, shape in the Bible. So, so you have know to into it
0: then cuz you didn't make it up. But Somebody we, else made it up.
2: Yeah. And you, by you the way, can't. I the the Catholic folk came up with this understanding that I think is much more fair than what we Protestants have settled for which is there's a place called purgatory. (laughs) And you go to purgatory to have a limited punishment for the things you did wrong that were limited. (laughs) So even at our worst you hurt somebody again, why would you be punished for that forever? Now you don't get off (laughs) scot-free because that wouldn't be fair. That's why you go to Purgatory for a bit. And when you've been punished, you leave. It's actually a lot more gracious than what we've settled for. Don't you think? And I even grew up that if you were a good person, like an Aboriginal Australian, and you loved your brother and your neighbor, but you didn't know Jesus Christ by name, when you died, you'd go to hell. Because that's what God demanded. I mean, that's I'm a better person than that. I mean, God would be worse than me if that's true. Because I understand, hey, relative ignorance, you're not responsible for that. But we we bought into this fantasy that really is just about nationalism. Mm -hmm. It's about our way is the best way. God's on our side. God does things the way I do things. And I'm the most important person in the universe. So when people do something to me, they've affronted God. I, I, I think that's really what it amounts to.
1: Because yeah, it says in the Bible that God ultimately is the judge of who goes, you know, who goes to heaven. If you haven't, you're not going to go to hell just because you're not a Christian.
2: The other thing that becomes really, really important that we often miss is that. When fire shows up in the Bible, it's never an instrument of torture. Fire is an instrument of refinement. So it burns away dross so that the metal can become pure. It's sort of like in a threshing floor, wheat is separated from chaff. And I think we have the decision are people completely chaff and some are wheat? Or quite honestly, are we full of wheat and chaff? And in the end, God's going to separate that for our sake. So is hell where God puts those parts of us that we're afraid of and that separate us from God? Or is hell where God puts whole people groups? Does that make sense?
0: What comes into my mind is God saying, you can do it my way or the hard way. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah,
2: and I think then we have to decide if we do it the hard way. Is God mad and punishes us? Or does God, I mean, quite honestly, at my good moments of parenting, when my kid, At my good moments. They're not all good. When my kids do stuff I've trained them not to do, I will tell you, I... I I grew up with a logical model that said, I hope you get punished because you didn't listen to me, which is so self-centered and so unempathetic. Or do I say, (sighs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: Mm
2: -mm, my heart's breaking because I see you're in pain. And I I think, this is going to sound crazy, I didn't, sometimes we're really sure the scriptures point God is that exacting judge in the sky, watching everything you can do like Santa Claus and making a list of naughty and nice. But I think in that way the scriptures have read us. I'm not convinced we've read the scriptures. Again, the prophets, I think, are saying do not yearn for the day of the Lord. Do not yearn for God to vindicate everything. It won't go well for you. (laughs) Jesus said this a different way. You get really upset about that speck in your neighbor's eye and you ignore the log in your own. I know this sounds like a very different read, but but I want to suggest it's, it's here. Now, hubris, I think, has its own reward. And we can say that hubris, God punishes hubris, but I think another way we can understand it is hubris has natural consequences. And they're usually not very good. So I think we have to pick. When something bad happens to us, And it it depends each time. Is it God doing it to us? Or does some stuff just happen? Or do we get to have natural consequences for what we do?
0: Because that's
2: all bound up together, right?
0: Sometimes
2: we just don't know. Why? I've had this interesting journey with my teenage son who taught me what kind of questions to ask. And if you've ever had kids or a spouse or parents and they did something that was egregious to you and you asked them why, did you do that? Did they ever tell you anything that satisfied your anger? Have you ever asked why'd you do that? Got an answer and said, I get it now. In my case, whenever I asked why, either my kiddo didn't know or gave a reason that was so dumb I just got more upset. There was nothing kiddo could do to justify because I'd showed him what to do. So there came this point where I realized asking why questions hurt the relationship every time and therefore maybe I was asking the wrong
1: questions
2: (laughs) and I think these are good analogs to help us figure out how God's mind and heart might work see I think God has to be at the center of our best moments not at our most vindictive or self-satisfying moments I don't know if that makes sense My kiddos can be Tasmanian devils, but if I want to see God, I look at them asleep in the bed. <laughs> and I wonder when God sees us asleep in the bed, if God doesn't also go, Oh, there I am.
0: <laughs>
2: you know. I don't know why it's easier to see God when they're asleep. It is. <laughs> and quiet. That's what's nice. I hope I haven't come off the deep end here. Again, I, I, I hope what you're hearing me say is this urge for the day of the Lord and for retribution and for us to be vindicated, I think the prophets warn us against it because God isn't that way. And I think really it ties into the... Um, The bit that Nahum warns us, Assyria gobbles people up, it's full of this hubris, and and in the evangelical church I grew up in, we had so much hubris. We knew we were the best people in the world, we were God's chosen people, and if we gave money to the church, God was going to give us money back. It was really not a gift, it was an investment. God was testing us. Um, we got a speeding ticket, it was because God wanted to teach us a lesson, and I think all of that, sorry is hubris and it's idolatry. And I think the Prophets are warning us about that. So when you see someone
0: doing something that you think is wrong, is it hubris to try to tell them you don't think it's wrong? As you know, I think um, this
2: becomes really, really difficult because it's not if we do it, I think how we do it is probably the most important thing, you know. And I think sometimes we have to look on ourselves and try to figure out whether something is actually wrong or just an affront to the way we decided the world should be. You know, we often, I think, get those things confused. And if you don't mind me saying, when we read the Torah, particularly in the book of Leviticus, there's something called the Holiness Code. And the holiness code says you have to behave different from the Egyptians just so you can be different. So, in Egypt, they wear garments made out of two kinds of fabric. You can't do that. If you do, it's an abomination. It's gross. In Egypt, they eat shellfish. You're not going to do that. That's gross. If for no other reason than you, then, then yeah, you're going to just... do it to be different. And, I don't want to say Leviticus is wrong. There's a point when we teach our children this is our way and our house. We don't use words like that. And I think that's good and right when they're children. (laughs) But if culture is the way we do things around here, right, and that becomes so tight that if you don't follow, you lose your value, I'm afraid we've missed it. You know, so I I think part of what we have to remember is we grow in moral stages, and what we eat at different stages depends on where we are. Well, that sounds like everything is relative. Well, a lot is relative. I mean, doesn't your own experience tell you that?
0: I I guess I'm just really struggling right now with the country, and the divide now just seems to be erupting.
2: I think it's really, really hard. And this, this I think, is an interesting thing because um, I'm going to tell you, I, I personally became slightly disenfranchised with politics a long time ago. Um, and I try to hold room that I don't know everything because I don't. I mean, honestly, when people talk about the new tax plan, all I really know is whether my taxes went up or down. And they went up, and I don't like that because it costs more money. And I'm suspicious about where my money's going. These are the kinds of things. But as a big policy, I mean, I know how to solve um, multivariable uh, equations and, and you know and, and do derivatives and things like that. But I'm no economist. I mean, I don't really know. I've got limited. Data. What, what I think, though, and I hope what you hear me say from the pulpit is we have decided that um, we're allowed to talk about people we disagree with as if they're non-human beings. And, and that's absolutely wrong. But sometimes people say things that are so, the way we do things around here, they have our economic, fiscal uh, same values, or something like that. So when they call other people animals, we say, well, I agree with you more than I disagree, so I guess we'll just tolerate that. <laughs> and, and my thinking is, in, if, if you don't mind me saying, in the last election we had two people whose use of language was evil. Both of them. And We've had dynasties in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party who are fundamentally misogynist, and we have ignored it when people had charisma or they were successful. And when we don't like them, then we call out what we really don't like. So I don't think our current president is any more of a misogynist than Bill Clinton was. And in both cases, we're absolutely wrong. And I didn't think they're evil people, I just think we make this weird thing where we say a person's a liar. Well, that's not right. A liar means everything you say is a lie, and I don't think anybody does. When people tell lies, I think we say we like the truth. And when people say that you can grab a woman by the whatever, or that hey, she's my intern, and it was consensual, that's not consensual. It's not. And we say it's wrong. (laughs) But because somebody does something wrong doesn't mean they're evil. We all do things wrong. The question is, how do we have accountability without demonizing people? I think what we've lost is the ability to have conversation even when we disagree about small things, and to be honest, like that's on display in the media, and, and we just drink it down.
0: So I. So what? What do we do? Stop? I Are mean, we wrong to say it's got to stop?
2: Throw them all out? <laughs> Start No, I think I, I, Again, I don't think it's about the people. I just think it's this sort of sense that hey, we're not going to buy into a way of speaking and acting that we believe to be wrong. So verbal. And I think it's okay to say, listen, uh, I just, I'm calling this, this thing in the speech bothering me. Well, you believe blah, 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 blah. Wrong is wrong. That's that. And I'm trying to grow in this way myself. Because, again, I think the thing is, if we say, oh, this person's evil. God will get him. <laughs> we're, we're, we're ignoring the opportunities we have in our lives. In ourselves, right, and, and this I think is this really interesting thing that we have as a church going on. I mean, again, the churches I grew up in, if you didn't have the party line, or if you asked a question that sounded doubtful, like, yeah, uh, you know, so so like my hope is that we come together and know we're going to disagree, and we choose to respect each other. I
0: think we are more polite. 1955. Oh, yeah. And I think what's going on now is a lot of stuff is being reported or said or lied about in the media, which are in the news, which back in the day they would never have said or reported. You know, our presidents were all adulterers. You know, maybe not. Eisenhower was too. He hadn't yeah, he had his girlfriend. And, uh, and... But it was too polite to speak about it. But now, I mean, you spit on the grass and, and you're, you know, evil. So and I think we're it's subjected the, to this it's, assault on our sensitivities.
2: Part of me really enjoys watching Downton Abbey because oh, right. the <laughs> way in which they speak, the <laughs> manners they have are lovely. And then that show reveals exactly how objectified women are.
0: Yeah.
2: So in some ways, I think we've made a little movement on real opportunity even though we've held on to prejudice you know and sometimes we like to pat ourselves in the back we've come a long way and we don't realize we still are holding on to this fundamental prejudice by the way I think that's what idolatry is (laughs) or hubris is and we like to get ourselves off the hook by thinking it means back down to a statue and really it's that stuff I I don't know if that makes sense
3: it would be easy to, to think that this is just a United States issue. It's not. Well, it's it is absolutely worldwide. You look at Great Britain, you look at, shoot, you look at Canada, and they're having the same issues. And I guess my thought is that is that the only way that we're going to fix that is to fix it from the bottom up. We're not going to fix it from the top down. And so the only way we can do it is to... Is to, is to um, Ensure that we don't allow those situations to cause our cause our friendships to dissolve, and they can mm-hmm. and have. But if we can work it, if we can work at this level, then maybe it will. Instead of instead of what is it, uh, trickle down will trickle up. Come on. Yeah.
2: So I think, and I think the thing that's really hard what you're saying is often this thing we don't realize in in, in the scriptures. This is not. My. We don't realize the scriptures talk very little about that and are very interested about that. Right. So, this word really just means you've missed the mark shooting a target. And um, we've, we've, we've become really interested with this like, you told a lie, you're going to hell forever because you missed the mark. R- really. A uh, careful of the scriptures shows that God is much more interested in this category, which is bigger than any one of us can control. So this category belongs racism and sexism and patriotism, right? Which is the fundamental belief that I'm better than you are. It's different from civic duty and national pride. It's national hubris. And just to make that clear. No one of us can defeat racism. Yeah. You can choose to not be racist, but it's so a part of our social fabric that it outlives any one of us. right? And so what's interesting is when the Bible talks about repentance, it talks about changing your course or changing the lens through which you see the world or making right for what you did wrong, that's penance. But there's this other weighty word in Hebrew that really has to do with just fundamental grief. Grief that this thing is bigger than I can control and and again not everybody agrees with this but I'm just going to tell you as a white man I have more privilege than anybody in the United States particularly because I'm a Protestant white man. I didn't ask to be born male. I didn't ask to be born white. I didn't ask to be born American. By the way I'm grateful for all of those things but at the same time I know that a black man with all my credentials is going to get 90% of what I make and that there are neighborhoods that person can't even move into even if they have the means. I could say, I could pretend that's not true but it is. And how do I handle that? It becomes really difficult. Do I demand to get paid ninety percent of my wage as a way of showing solidarity with black men? Do I try to live in a historically black neighborhood so that I can sort of go against the grain? I mean, I don't know that there's a silver bullet to that, right? And I hear a lot of people. This is really interesting because I had this teenager. He came. He came home one day and he said, "We are so. I'm, I'm so tired that we're so poor." <laughs> I just laughed at him because some of the kids at school had two hundred dollars shoes, and we refused to buy him two hundred dollars shoes. So we were poor. But then six months later, he came in and said. We live in such a rich neighborhood, like with so much disdain, and it's like and are you going to say you 're welcome I mean, because that, that really I think is a good response, right so I, I think there's this weird thing where like faced with sin, we can say the world sucks, and I hate it all, but i don 't think that 's the right response. I think there's this mixing between gratitude and grief and repentance and um, boy, trying to live into um, Authentic speech and changing what I can, knowing that I can't change everything. I mean, this I think is really, really hard. Like, how do you respond to prophetic oracles to say you're missing the mark? I mean, you want to try to buy products in which the laborers are paid fair and ethical wages? Good luck to you. I don't know where you'll shop. I I really, I don't know. Um, And that doesn't mean, I think, that we just say, well, we can't do it. Who cares? I think it's something we hold on to knowing that we have to live in that broken reality but we don't have to settle for it. I, I, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it makes great sense.
0: I, I, just, I just wonder what I, personally, I mean, it, it, really is, it really is hurting me to see what the world's doing now. And I see us in this Bible reading turning against mm-hmm. God. And
2: it just, it, I think of what can I one person do? And I guess what I'm hearing is, the best you can do personally. Like, I think that's we. Good enough. It seems to me like we have to hold on to the fact that all that something is rotten in Denmark, mm-hmm. but we are citizens of Denmark. And I think, like John said, I think there's something really, um, there's this natural urge to fix the whole system that I would tell you I'm not sure is fixable. Um, it's helpful to say there's something wrong with the system, but there's also something really helpful when we find ourselves having conversation with our friends or reading Facebook or whatever to say, no. No, <laughs> no I do not believe we should talk that way. And it doesn't have to be an abrasive way. People don't like to be told no, myself included. So we, we take a boundary like an abrasion. But I think there's this thing, Brene Brown says that, Um, We can either choose the discomfort of setting a boundary or the resentment that happens if we don't. And many of us have settled for resentment.
3: There's a phrase I use that helps me speak up without being abrasive. And I like to say, I'm uncomfortable with that kind of joking. Or I'm uncomfortable with that language. It puts it on me. It doesn't say you're bad. It's just a tool that I use to help me have the courage to speak up and not feel so guilty about pointing at somebody
2: it, it's really, really hard, I think, and i, mm-hmm. I and you don't mind me saying like there's at one level there's like how we vote and yeah. and i I see people I kind of wish I weren't friends with parishioners on Facebook because I see what they write about political people, and it it just makes me sad. Mm-hmm that there's so much hatred and vitriol, because, I mean, I think the scriptures are really, really clear. We say that um, two wrongs don't make a right, but Jesus says that you can't drive Satan out with Satan. So by being satanic and being evil, you just make things worse, right? It's one thing to say hate speech is not acceptable from the president or the Congress or anybody else, and so I'm working on not buying into hate speech. That's a very different message than this person is evil and blah, blah. You know, and I, I think part of it has to be what we choose to live into knowing that that may not influence everybody else's choices. I, and I just, I think this is part of like, again, why the day of the Lord where God gets even with a stick won't go well for Us, because we're embedded in that. What does it really mean for God to get even with the world? Because, listen, for like, what are we, 5% of the world's population and we consume 33% of the world's resources? If God got even on us for that, it wouldn't go well. You, You know? And if we say we deserve it or we got there first... That's, that's the idolatry these people are talking about. I didn't despise being American, but I think we just have to be honest. We consume a disproportionate share of the world's resources, and we think they're our birthright, and they're not. But
0: we didn't start that.
2: This, and this is where sin comes from. You got it. Sin is something we didn't start. We were born into that. We were born into it. And it's so funny, right, because the number one category of people who make comments about my daughter that I don't want her to grow into are women. They talk about how pretty she is. And so a woman is defined by whether she's pretty or not. This is true. Look at how people talk about little boys. They don't talk about them as being pretty. They talk about them as being clever, or they talk about them as being having motor skills, or as have, being energetic. <clears throat> the little girls are pretty or they're not pretty. And I know people don't mean the wrong thing, but I know what you hear is what you internalize. So what do I do as a parent? You have the prettiest hair. She's also really good at spelling. And is that, is that what I do? I don't I don't know. <laughs> Cause I don't think there's a solution to to that. What beautiful red hair. It is true, her red hair is beautiful, but my daughter is more than that. What a wonderful dress you're wearing. These are the kinds of ways we address children and what we teach them, right, is to be so interested in how they look and then we wonder why it is they don't like how they look when they're teenagers. And why they hate their bodies when they're granite women or they've had a baby and their body changes and look, like they're no good anymore. And, and yeah. it's not our intention. That's the thing. Yeah. But that's why sin with a capital S is what I think God is really concerned with. <laughs> the little S, we can change. Look, I I cannot tell lies. If I worked really hard, I think I could avoid telling lies. I don't actually need God to help me with that. I don't need God to help me not kill other things. I can make that choice. If I make that choice, other things are going to die. God is worried about that. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. This is when Paul talks about powers and principalities. He doesn't mean like demons and archdemons and the Wicca cult. He means that stuff that's bigger than any one human being, and we don't we don't know what to do with it. And part of it is we we want the world to be so linear that. Here's how we raise up this valley, and the world isn't linear. I just, it's not. So, the capital of sin is fruit, and the little sin is. I think so. And the group thing is so big that it's almost like a spirit, like it almost has its own identity, right? And if you've ever been in a mob or been around a mob, normal people lose their minds mm-hmm. to sin. And they can, the mom mentality can actually be really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: But, I mean, I can control racism. I just
2: can't do I control it. I, that I, think, I think you have much more control over the little one than you do over the big one. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, you could do like San Anthony and go live on a pillar, but even still, even as remote as you go, you still are part of that bigger product.
0: If you went to South Africa, then you might feel that you were being discriminated against.
2: It's unlikely. The Afrikaners still have all the power. I mean, this is the thing.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. Well, the uh when we were in England, Frank and I, were very amazed that it seemed that the blacks were exactly all like the whites. There was no difference among the British. They were, had, they were. They thought alike. They spoke alike. They, you know, they, they were just. And we said, "What's this?" You know, and we concluded that it was because they had no history of slavery that they were regarded. It's just like everybody else. The blacks and and the whites didn't seem to have any problems. No differences. I don't know if anyone's ever. Huh? We didn't. didn't do now. The thing is, we do not Well, that wasn't very long. I, I mean, in England.
2: Yeah, well, they have a lot of problems. Well, right they, well we just didn't see it. There were things that are invisible. I would tell you, I lived in Atlanta where uh, 55% of the population was black, so white people were in the minority. I'm not going to pretend like we didn't hold all the power. When I moved to San Diego, there weren't very many black people in San Diego. A lot of black people live in L.A. In San Diego, there was less racial tension between black and white people simply because there just weren't black people. The major... Tension with between Anglo's and Hispanic people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and access to things like healthcare. And what do you know? We were right on the border with Tijuana, the world's most dangerous city. It was more dangerous to go to Tijuana than it was to go to Mosul, mm-hmm. statistically. Mm-hmm. And sure, there were a lot of those folk around, and we lived in great tolerance. But tolerance is not the opposite of racism. Respect is. <laughs>
1: When I was on affiliations and nurses training, we went to Carroll, Illinois, and they told us from our nice religious school not to try and go light your one little candle for equality. Just don't make any waves there. And when you walk down the street and the black person got off the sidewalk, I found that so offensive. And the hospital, the black section wasn't air-conditioned, very hot there. And I'll tell you, that actually made me angry. So I just made sure I didn't buy into that, you know, I I wasn't going to agree. And I told the nuns at the school, this isn't right,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and I said, well, this is the way it is.
2: And it becomes really darn hard because if you don't mind me saying, right, I can say, well, I'm just going to have more black friends. That's how I'm going to deal with this. But I don't run in circles where I naturally meet black people. I'm just going to be honest with you. And if I try to become your friend because you're black, that's a token friendship. There's nothing subjective about it at all. It's objectivization, right? Now, hopefully, we could grow into subjects, and I have to put myself in... To places where I could have exposure, but I mean, again, it's really hard. It's really hard.
3: I think this generation is is less um, um, uh, prejudiced or racist, if you will. Um, I I say that because um, I mean, my my son's best friend is black, mm-hmm. and uh, and they're roommates.
2: Yeah, I think we so, struggle I mean, with other things. He didn't, he didn't see, he didn't yeah, see
3: yeah. black like, yeah. you know, I grew up in the South, so I see black differently. Um, and uh, so he didn't see things like that at all. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully, hopefully Is the Star him, Trek generation? It. Pardon me. The Star Trek generation. He's a millennial.
2: That's what we call it. Yep.
3: Well, I'll, I have please a question. Um, you've said this before. This, basically, what we're reading is the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't want to call it Bible, Hebrew books.
2: Yeah, but that's what Bible means,
3: books, plural, plural. Okay, great. So, um, how come so many Jews are atheists?
2: Um, It's a great question. It really has to do with exactly what we're talking about. After the Holocaust, after pogroms, they say, aha, one of three things is the case. Either God's not good... 'Cause how could God allow that to happen? Right. God's not powerful enough to stop it, so in some ways our piety doesn't matter because God doesn't have power or just God in around. And I think to be honest with you, if we believe in a linear world and we believe in karma, I think atheism should be our conclusion.
3: Boy, you're gonna have to delve into that one a little bit.
2: Well, if you get what you pay for mm-hmm which is how we tend to function, Mm -hmm. and if God's like that, the world makes no sense. If, on the other hand, God isn't interested in transactions, if God operates a different way from that, which, by the way, grace, I think I said this a couple of months ago and I'm still trying to struggle with this, grace is not an investment. God doesn't want a shareholder's report. Grace is a gift. You can do whatever you choose. You can squander it. You can never have it, but God gives it to us. Well, that's very different from the linear world.
3: <laughs> well, isn't this somewhat transactional?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one way to read it is, you're getting what you pay for, but I think another way to... Well,
3: they start out... Everybody starts out with, a, let's say, a blank slate.
2: Sure, this is very American of us, tabula no, rasa.
3: I'm, I'm thinking about this now. So, so, Josiah, he's born, he does good things. God is happy with that. Um, Manasseh is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Manasseh uh starts off doing bad things.
2: In Kings, Manasseh never changes. In Chronicles, Manasseh Manasseh changes. changes. See, they disagree with each other. other. This is important.
3: Yeah. But but assuming that the fact is that I guess God is saying, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait until you do something, and then I'll judge.
1: Oh, okay, okay. Um, tell him, just, just tell him, give me ten minutes. Okay. He said
2: there was no... Thank you. Yes. Um, so, so look, I think there's a difference between natural consequences for our actions and God punishing us. And I think this is something we have to separate. Cause is
3: God waiting for us to take the first step? Whether it be down uh, the
2: road of righteousness or down the road of... I, I'm, I'm not a mystical guy. I'm not. Yeah, yeah. I'm an academic guy. But here's what I think mystically. A lot of times we say, boy, you know, I pray and I don't get an answer. So why isn't God answering my prayer? He
1: said
2: no. And I read a really interesting <laughs> book, which is that God was the one who spoke first. So when we pray, we don't start a conversation. It's when we answer God. <laughs> prayer is our answer not our question, because God was first. It's <laughs> a sort of an interesting way to flip that on its, sort of on its head. Um, so is God waiting for us? Um, I don't think so. I think God is fully present in us. I think we're, we're waiting to live into that.
3: So these folks didn't live in.
2: No, and I and I think the thing is too. You have to look at what happens to righteous people in the Bible. They don't end up wealthy. They usually end up in a lot of pain. Maybe dead. And I, I think um, the thing is parenting my kid with empathy instead of with outcome mentalities hurts my heart a whole lot more. I just would much rather live that way.
3: Well, if all the not all, but let's say if the righteous people end up in a lot of pain. Yeah. why would you want to be righteous?
2: it's a great question you know what's interesting is we, we kind of have this the gospel we read for Sunday is Francis' gospel right it's coming to me all you who are weary and heavy laden I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light well geez, how could Jesus say his burden is light I ended up on a cross and I think maybe the difference is the authentic person doesn't have to carry around all the pretending and the shields that frankly are really exhausting. And sometimes we think, hey, if we could just be invulnerable, we would never hurt and things would be great and you really can't have love without vulnerability. I think in general what we we confuse is that armor is strength and that vulnerability is weakness and really it's just a lot to bear.
0: Something you just said to him Gave me a question. Of, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm like way all over the place. We're all over the place together. But, I hope yeah. that's okay. <laughs> did they have the Holy Spirit? In well, these why not? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Why not? Did they? Like, I mean, it, I mean, Jesus said, "I'm giving you this Holy Spirit, and He's going to come to you and be in you." And then you had a question about did these people have God in them? Or, some, or something you said they didn't you know,
2: I, I, no, I, think, I think actually we get this wrong when we say there's places God isn't I mean quite honestly, I mean, again I'm not a mystical time. guy no, but um, when, when God makes the, the world the first thing God makes is not the sun and the moon and the stars God actually makes time and at the end God rests in time mm-hmm. rest doesn't mean sleeps, rest is like that moment where you kind of sprawl around and fill it up in the, in the Kabbalah, the Jewish mysticism image, God is like a pregnant mother, and the earth shows up in God's womb. We say that in Christian language, Holy Spirit in whom we live and move and have our being. It's not that God is inside us, it's that we're moving around inside of God. That's the mystical image. And so what we like to do is say, God's not in that person. That's fine. That person is completely moving around inside of God. I mean, again, it's a, it's a, it's a mystical inverse. But see, logically, it must be true. <laughs> because if God is everywhere, then God must be in the people you hate the most. And the people that you love the most. And that presence may not be overwhelming them we might wish it did that this becomes one of those there's this great African proverb that says God created us because God thought we would enjoy it (laughs) no I think it's a great proverb actually it's a great proverb and I think what the prophets are saying is we enjoy it most when it doesn't come at somebody else's expense Yeah. we enjoy it most when it doesn't come at somebody else's expense so we need to be very careful how we live into this and when it comes at somebody else's expense it's idolatry and idolatry has consequences not just hey you get your fingers uh, hit or your bottom swatted idolatry has consequences for joy because happiness and joy are different things and I think we come back to like why would we want to do this if it ends up being painful Happiness can't handle pain, and joy is bigger than pain. So I think the armor is about happiness, and it's very contingent upon circumstance. And I think joy has no regard for circumstance because it's so much greater than circumstance. Of course, all of this is about choice. I mean, again, the thing is, as a mathematician... You need infinite examples to prove a law. You're never done. One counterexample disproves it. So, does your spouse love you? They can never prove it to you. And they can easily disprove it with a single word. We make a choice about what we believe. And there's a lot of choices that we read about, right? Priests profane God. Judges devour widows. Prophets are reckless with what they speak. Again, our political leaders are reckless with what they speak. Uh, I probably profane God. I mean, this is like I'm supposed to be somebody who represents God. It's really important how I treat people, especially when they ask things on behalf of the church. Right? Uh really important. Again, because of what we represent. Judges devour people. Boy, I'm glad I'm not a judge, but I sure like being judge. I really like being arbitrated for people whose business is none of mine. And in that sense, I devour them, right? And I think it's an interesting thing whether you're on the bench or not. Our judgment can give life. It can give restoration. Or we can devour each other by saying, you hillbilly, you democrat, you feminist, these are ways we devour people with our own crap, right? Josiah is a really interesting guy. We get to read all this stuff he does, like defiles graves. He digs up their bones and pees on them. I mean, really, this is the kind of stuff you can't undo that, right? Um, And again, it, it, it isn't enough because in the end, faith, I don't think, is a transaction. And that's why Hezekiah, I mean, Habakkuk says this really interesting thing, right? The righteous will live by faith. The just will live by faith. Just and righteous are are synonyms for us. I I hope we didn't ignore the scriptures too much. We have to call a close today because the symphony's here. Um, If we missed something, we'll return to it, but otherwise we'll start Jeremiah next.